Um, welcome. Good to have you with us wherever you're joining us around the world and then later in different time zones, people joining us, Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, uh, different places, and of course around South Africa. So thank you, thank you, thank you. For those of you who missed it, um, so it would have been, today is Sunday, so Saturday. So I think Friday night, my um, interview with Jared Cooper was broadcast on uh, Tribe TV. Um, it is on our timeline from yesterday morning. We had a great time together, so you're welcome to watch it there. And we're going to try and get the link of the full interview and uh, because some people have requested it so they can send it out. And uh, so we'll get that and then pass that on. But anyway, so end of the world. So the uh, whole reason why I'm dealing with this um, concerning the end of the world, not only because of all the end of the world stuff that is going around. I was watching a young prophet and <laughs> um, he was teaching a series called uh, The Rapture Decoded. <laughs> and all it was was just a rehash of, you know, the same story. And uh, anyways, so maybe, <laughs> maybe this is The Rapture Decoded. Who knows? But um, I'm not claiming to know everything. But for me, my whole uh, goal is to show you scriptures, you know, the law of laws of interpretation of scripture, find a prophecy with its mate, it's fulfilled, put it together, you know, two or three witnesses, every matter is established. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that is being said, um, and put out there, they are doing an injustice, they're actually murdering the text, and giving it their own interpretation, which means then, that anything can be said, and it's only the one who's teaching that has the key to the interpretation, because he decides. So we've got to keep running to them to get the interpretation. We can't find it in the word ourselves. And that's very, very dangerous. So everything I'm giving you, I'm trying to put it into the word. I'm trying to put it into the word and to bring it up. So um, so my whole purpose was to just, you know, get rid of some of the fear factor that has been implicit and that's been going around in, this, in these teachings and these doctrines. And, um, and of course, we're in a time period where we're remembering, for those of you who have been watching, the period of the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Now we're in the parent period where for 40 days he was um, appearing to the disciples prior to his ascension and then to the giving, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So I felt and that this would be a really, really good time because Matthew 24 and uh, Daniel, you know, the parallel passage to Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Luke 21, and if you put it together, you start to see and understand the end of the world that uh, Jesus was referring to. So without going into too much um, elaboration, the disciples knew uh, the book of Daniel. And, and it would have been clear in their understanding, same as the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, you know, that religious group. And uh, they all knew the promise of the coming of the Son of Man, who was the Messiah, and there was a great expectation of the coming of the Messiah. But at the same time, understanding from the book of Daniel that there was going to be um, destruction to the city. And um, so when Jesus spoke about it, coming out of Matthew 23 into Matthew 24, indicating the stones of the city and the temple in particular, that not one would be left on top of the other. Um, they then, with the background in mind, they went, then began to ask, well, when is this going to happen? because they knew from the prophecy. Now, here was Jesus more or less indicating, I know when, because he said the time is coming. And it, in fact, it was, it was at hand more or less. And so they asked what would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the world. So the end of the world happened right back there in AD 70. It began with the coming of Jesus. Remember, we looked at the fact that, that Jesus was crucified once for all at the end of the age, but he was the lamb saying from the foundation of the world. So he ended one era, one age, one world with the governing bodies, with heaven and earth, ruling principles and powers, or government, if we can put it that way, which was the law of Moses. It was the teachers of the law. They governed everything economically, spiritually, socially, and everywhere. And so it was the beginning of the end of that. Christ slain from the foundation of the world. He was laid as the foundation. And so he, he begins a new world, new world order, if we can put it that way. New heaven, new earth, new sun, moon, stars, new governing principles, new ruler. And of course, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, um, ruling and reigning. Because we entered into the gospel period, the kingdom period, the church age. 
And so that was the coming of Jesus that was referred to. Also, um, the Bible talks very much about in the Old Testament, the, day, the great day of his wrath. It also talked about the day of his vengeance, the day of the Lord, that day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, um, as it got closer, it became not, no longer the day, became the hour. And, and so it was all in AD 70. So we also looked at and we connected a lot of things into the book of Revelation. And uh, for me to show you um, that the book of Revelation was also fulfilled because it's the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. So it's not a futuristic book. There may be parts, I'm not sure yet, that are futuristic, but a very small um, section. But I'm, you know, I'm open to that. But it seems to me that the entire book is fulfilled. We looked at a lot of the biblical imagery because Jesus said you will see the sign of the Son of Man, you will see him in, in, you know, in heaven, um, quoting in that in Matthew 23, before this, well, um, no, Matthew 26, before the Sanhedrin, and he was quoting from Daniel, the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, and basically saying to the Sanhedrin, I am the Son of Man, you know, that, that was open, that vision that uh, Daniel had, I'm that Son of Man, You're gonna, you will see me um, in the heavens, or in heaven as a sign, coming in the clouds, basically, we're seated at the right hand of the majesty. And we saw the biblical imagery of God coming in clouds all the way through the Old Testament on surrounding nations. And when he came to them in judgment, that was their day, the day of the Lord for Egypt, the day of the Lord for Philistia, the day of the Lord for Edom. But it was always the coming in the clouds. In other words, it was a judgment where he would change the, the government and change those nations. And so it's consistent all the way through. So that's what I was trying to show. And I know, I know last week was intense and heavy. Um, uh, I think um, somebody was saying to me, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go back and watch it three times because there was a lot in there. So I'm going to try and not cram so much um, in today because you know I don't want to give you a thick head full of um, information. What I'm trying to do is just unpick certain aspects. I don't think that we're going to have the time or get there to go through it all because then we're going to have to go, you know, you have to cover so much material and we've already basically do the book of Revelations chapter by chapter. So I just want to unpick something and sufficient to show you if we can dismantle the skeleton, you know that, you know, the flesh falls apart, the edifice falls. We just pull out a few of the key structured points. So just review the timeline of the, the, the people that talk about this, you know, the mark of the beast and, you know, the coming of the Lord being soon, get ready, he's coming back. And, um, you know, so, you know, he's going to come in the clouds and the, the rapture is going to take place and we're going to get caught up. The dead will be raised first and then we are alive, we'll follow. And this is the, the story. I'm not, not saying every single aspect is wrong, but the majority was wrong. And if the majority is wrong, it's wrong. And so um, that will be the, the rapture. You'll be coming like a thief in the night in a time we, we, we don't know. It's interesting to me, but First Thessalonians 5 tells us, that hour won't take us by surprise. We will know. So anyways, um, and then somehow the Antichrist will be revealed. You'll make a, um, a covenant with, um, with Israel, um, and, and you'll be a man of peace in the middle of, uh, you'll make a seven-year covenant in the middle, about three and a half years in. You'll break it, set up the abomination that causes desolation, um, you know, put a pig on the altar in the temple and something like this. And then, you know, we'll go into... Um, you, that time of great tribulation and, um, you know, there's going to be the great white throne judgment. There's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and then the giving of the mark of the beast, you know, on the hand, the forehead, we won't be able to buy or eat um, or anything like that. And so basically that's the day. There's the millennial thousand year rule. There's, there's the opening of hell, you know, Apollyon. So all, all of those kinds of things are, are, are there. So, all I wanted to do was just to unpick a few things and show you a few things. So first of all, um, maybe today, you know, you'll begin to see, um, and, and based on the previous two sessions, you know, concerning the rapture, you know, that there's not going to be secret something happening. And I, I don't know, he's going to come back physically, literally to Jerusalem, but somehow every eye will see him. And of course, technology will, will make that happen. You know, pity about those who are sleeping, of course, because one side of the world is, never mind, never mind. And um, the revealing of the Antichrist, you know, so 
Uh, maybe we'll touch on those things and, and see, you know, next next week. The mark of the beast, the triple six, the great tribulation. So I think already I've showed you that the coming, you know, what was the coming? The coming was the coming of the Son of Man in judgment on Israel. And um, he came as judge, as the Son of Man. And, and so when he, when he rose again, um, that period from the, his ministry to AD 70 was a period of 40 years. That is termed in Second Peter as the patience of Christ because God was being patient with um, Israel yet again um, and giving them a chance to repent because he was not willing that any man should perish. But he gave them an entire generation, 40 years, to change their minds and to repent. That is the patience of God. And uh, then, of course, that happened, which was the great tribulation that even Daniel prophesies about, prophesies about several times, the coming of his, his, the great day of his wrath, and it would be unparalleled in that world up until that time, but in fact, probably in the world at large at that time. It was an horrific day. Josephus records a lot of it. It was terrible. And, um, and so, so that was the coming. So that was also then the tribulation was then. So if that is the case, then a lot of the other things don't stand. The, the Antichrist doesn't stand. The mark of the beast doesn't stand the way that it's being taught. The rapture doesn't stand the way that it's being taught. And so, um, so we, we'll try and have a look at it, look at that um, starting today. But of course, a lot of the timeline they get from the book of Daniel, the 70 weeks. Now, Daniel was praying. Remember, Daniel was amongst those um, young men taken into captivity, princes who were taken into captivity in, in, into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, you know, Daniel and his four friends, uh, uh, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had, um, you know, who were also taken uh, into captivity. They'd all been appointed as advisors and been trained up, you know, as, as um, you know, people that were wise and that could um, give the king counsel. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream about the statue. Daniel interprets it, and it's about successive nations coming. And it all has to do with Israel. It all has to do with um, God's plan for Israel and his intentions for Israel. And so um, later on, you know, those same four nations are described as four beasts or four animals and are then carried over into the book of Revelations, which then ties Revelations to the book of Daniel. Um, I don't know if we're about to get into it, but anyway, and, and so Daniel began to obviously pray. He was burdened for his people uh, being in captivity and exile um, in, in Babylon. But understand that successive nations came and conquered Babylon. And then the next one, you know, so there was the, the media Persian Empire. There was the Greek Empire. There was the Roman Empire. And so each one was a succession. And uh, Daniel lived through a few of those new rulers and those new empires. But he was, he was concerned about it. And it was part of the reason why he began to pray three times a day. How long is this exile going to continue? And then he understands from reading in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 that Jeremiah prophesied that the exile period would be 70 years. It's really interesting that Daniel gets a prophecy about 70 weeks of years. It's really interesting, and it becomes a day for a year timetable. And this is not new because, you know, the, the, um, a, year for a, a day for a year was also when the spies went in to uh, spy out the promised land, the, the, you know, 10 of them came back in and believed they were away for 40 days. And basically God said that Israel was going to wander in the wilderness you know, a year for each day. So 40 days, 40 years. And, and so, and that wasn't the only place. But anyway, so we need to just have a look. I trust that you're with me. Hope you're with me. I'm not, I'm just taking it easy today, okay? And I'm just going to skim through it and, and have a look at it. So I'm glad you're with me. Can I have an amen or a hallelujah? Thank you so much. So um, let's have a read. Daniel was in captivity and he lived about, and he gave this prophecy about 500 years before Jesus. And um, his burden, the burden of his heart was to see the end of the captivity and the people repatriated and restored back to their land. So listen, he starts to pray. Now, it's very interesting that the angel Gabriel, and I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. The angel Gabriel appears to him and, and uh, gives him the interpretation or gives him the prophetic word. But yes, Daniel. 
chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Trust that you're with me. We have to hurry. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, for sin, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks. A week is seven days. So seventy sevens. Know then and understand, Daniel, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, um, the, the prince, to the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks. So first of all, there's going to be seven weeks, seven, seven, 49. That's first. And then there's going to be three score and two. There's going to be 62 with the seven making 69. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous time. So that's the street of Jerusalem and the wall of Jerusalem would be rebuilt, but there'll be troubles. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. There it is. Remember what I said, the disciples, the Pharisees, the scribes, they knew that it was going to be destroyed. So when Jesus said, not one stone on top of the other, connected to this verse, okay, when, you know, is this going to happen? So, um, he says, shall be destroyed, the city and the sanctuary, the end of the, the, thereof shall be with a flood. It'll come quickly and, and be destructive. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And I did cover that last week. And he shall confirm, who? The prince, the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, so middle of seven is three and a half, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offerings, the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, you shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, the end, you know, until the end. And that de determined shall be poured on the desolate. Now, I touched on that last week. Jesus said, your house is left you desolate. He was speaking directly to the scribes and Pharisees. I hope I've stressed enough to connect Daniel's prophecy, Matthew 24, to that particular time, that particular period, that generation. Remember Jesus when he gave all the signs as the prophetic agenda unfolding over the next 40 years, um, you know, he was saying this generation will not pass away. And a generation biblically is about 40 years. And he was saying, you're not going to die before you see some of at least the, the preliminary prophecies start to happen. Again, let me just say the coming was in AD 70. So this great prophecy is pertaining to Daniel's people. Now, I want you to look at it. First thing Gabriel says was, 70 weeks are determined, Daniel, you're a Jew. Uh, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Not the whole world, not every nation of the world, your people, your city. So this is going to happen to the Jews. This is going to happen to their city, their temple, and as Jesus said, in their time. So it would be a period of 70 weeks or 490 days or 490 years, you know, each day symbolizing a year. And um, so, so it will be for 490 years. So let's have a look at the 70th week. Now, all, all, every, both, mostly all theologians agree that the first seven weeks, you know, is basically, you know, the, the rebuilding of the temple, you know, or the command, the decree going out and so on. Then the three score and two weeks, the, uh, the 62 weeks with that seven makes 69. Uh, that's 483 years. And that would take us up to the Messiah. They are measured up into the Messiah. Now I'll tell you exactly when it wasn't the birth of Jesus. It was another time, probably, probably around 8027, somewhere around there. So that final week, the 70th week is the week where everything falls apart. All those that talk about the rapture and the beast and the, Antichrist and the tribulation all talk about, they are agreed, the 69 years takes us up to the time of Jesus. It's just that last week, they can't connect it. And somehow they disconnected from the consecutivity of the 69 weeks. And then they've pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And now there's in excess of 2000 years and counting. So the gap between that 70th week, which Daniel and I see it is all connected sequentially in time you know, all, all that same period, they've pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And it's just getting 
further and further, just like my hand going out of the picture, it's just going further and further away. And, and, and so they've made it a futuristic thing, whereas Daniel did not see it that way, neither did Jesus. And so, um, so it took us right up until the time of the Messiah, the time of, the, of the time of Jesus. So the Christ, the Messiah. So the 70th week is not about the Antichrist. It's not about an Antichrist who will make a covenant with the Jews and, um, you know, to allow them to rebuild the temple, a man of peace, you know, for seven years. And then after the three and a half years, break the covenant, cause the sacrifices to cease by um, sacrificing a pig, you know, on, on the altar and things like that. So the way that I see it is that there's no gap. It's the way I believe that the, the scripture showed. So if we have a careful look at the 70 weeks, it goes right up until the time of Jesus, all centered on, on Jesus. It's the times of the Messiah, until unto Messiah, and until it's all fulfilled. Now, I hope this part of it is, is okay with you. Now, I'm just going to run through very quickly the sort of the 12 parts. I'm going to elaborate on one, the 12 parts that make up Daniel's um, um, prophecy week, okay, or his prophecy, the 70 weeks. So Gabriel's um, specific words you know, as to who the prophecy was for, Daniel, it's for thy people, and it's upon thy holy city. And uh, so Jerusalem was to be restored. Prophetically, we know historically that's fulfilled. We have the biblical account of it, Ezra, Nehemiah, with prophets such as Haggai, Zechariah, including Joshua, the, the high priest, and uh, the prophet uh, Zechariah, prophesying all around that time. The rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah was responsible for the rebuilding of the wall under his leadership. Ezra came and reestablished the law and a lot of the sacrifices of the temple, etc., etc., etc. And so we can clearly see that, as I said, there were successive kings that came after Nebuchadnezzar. There was the Medo-Persian, the silver part, and uh, the first ruler was Cyrus. Then there was Darius. Then there was Artaxerxes something Darius and Artaxerxes were the same. And then if we read in Ezra 7 and Ezra 6 verse 14, we will see that Darius, that's why he's called the anointed, even though he was a secular king, God anointed him and used him um, to bring about his plan and he issued a decree. He was favorable um, to, to the Jews and issued the decree allowing them to start going back. So a group of people were allowed to go back first of all, and then different leaders were going back to reestablish and rebuild the city with its walls. And so, um, so it was to be restored. The first thing, Jerusalem was to be restored. So this is part of the prophecy that Gabriel gave um, Daniel. Then he said the streets and the wall, walls were to be rebuilt in troublous times. All you've got to do is look at Nehemiah and you see how Tobiah and Sanballat and Gershom, Gershom um, all gave him a hard time. They really opposed the rebuilding of the temple, even though the rulers had given written instruction that the people there were to assist. So they were rebuilt. So that's the first thing. Jerusalem was to be restored. We see it in the scripture. Streets and walls, we see it in scripture. Rebuilt. Then he says, the most holy was to be anointed. Now, this is not a future time. The most holy. Over and over again, Jesus is referred as the Holy One. It's amazing. Even the angel Gabriel, more about that later. Even the angel Gabriel announces to Mary when he visits her, the holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So the most holy shall be anointed. So over and over, I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I think you know this, that Jesus is referred to as the Holy One. Even the angels or the living creatures were crying in revelations, holy, 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 um, um, you know, he which was and is and is to come. And so that refers to Jesus. So for the, from the going out of the commandment by Darius to restore and rebuilding uh, Jerusalem, and then through that period up to the coming of Jesus was 483 years. And so those who knew the prophecy, the people of Israel were all expecting the Messiah that is the Christ. So far, so good. I've slowed down and making it a little bit easier. So along comes John the Baptist now. So Jesus said, you know, all the law and the prophesied, prophets prophesied up until John. So I do not see any prophecies beyond that. And then the book of Revelation also belongs to the, that testamental period. So there's no futuristic, there's very few, very futuristic prophecies 
you know, going beyond our time. So the people were in expectation, wondering if this is the Messiah. John says, I, I'm not the one, you know, he's coming. I'm just the forerunner. It's amazing when uh, Jesus appears on the scene and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, basically we're saying, okay, the time for Messiah now is to be manifest. So, so the times of Messiah, the 483 years, doesn't take us up to the birth of Jesus, but we're coming close now with the baptism of Jesus. So he was being made manifest to Israel. So when he was, uh, he was then baptized and when he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended him in bodily shape like a dove. Voice from heaven said, Thou art my son, in thee I am well pleased. So that was the revealing of, of the Son of God. That was the exact moment he appeared. This was his time. And I believe that the 483 years that Daniel was prophesying, the beginning of it was the revealing, the manifestation of Jesus as the Son of God at his baptism. Hence, the endorsement of the Father, the verification of the Father, the appearance of the Messiah was when the Spirit came upon him, the manifestation of the Christ. So, um, you know, that's why I see it as the baptism in water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then when he enters the synagogue, he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me. Peter says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Ghost and power, went about doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil. So that point that we refer to, the third point, the most holy was to be anointed. This is the, the anointed one, was Jesus, and it was at his baptism. And that was the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And then it goes on in four, uh, the, the fourth point that Gabriel said, Messiah was to be cut off, but not for himself. The Messiah, the Holy One would be cut off. And it's interesting that we see in Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus, that he would be cut off from the land of the living. And um, so that replies, that implies Jesus. So cut off means that he didn't die a natural death, that he would be killed, that he'd be murdered. And that's exactly what happened to him in Isaiah 53, verse 8. So the Messiah, the Holy One, the Anointed One would be cut off, but he wouldn't be cut off for himself. In other words, his death was for someone else. Church, his death was for you and me. Look how accurate the prophetic word 500 years before was when Gabriel uh, gave it to Daniel. And then he says, to finish the transgression, or liter literally to finish transgressions, you know, as Jesus was dying, he cried out on the cross, it is finished. So that was when our sin and our unrighteousness was dealt with, the blood of Jesus was shed, and all of our sins was paid for. We can see that in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, you know, he was, um, you know, crucified once for all at the end of the ages, um, and basically, um, he took away all of our sin by one sacrifice forever. There's no need for any other further sacrifices. So he finished our transgression. Now we are the righteousness of God in Christ because he was made to be sin for us, to make an end of sin. And Jesus dealt with sin. He completely um, dealt with it. Our sin and our unrighteousness, he will remember no more. Also, in uh, the book of Hebrews. And I don't need to elaborate on that because there's a few other places that I want to get to, to make an end of sins. So that was the whole purpose of Jesus coming on the cross. He ended our sins. He bare our sins in his body on the tree, says Peter in 1 Peter 2.24. So Angel Gabriel continues to deliver a prophetic word to Daniel. The seventh point, he says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, our sin and our unrighteousness had separated us from God. He was of too holy an eye than to behold evil. But suddenly now, and that word to make reconciliation for iniquity, the same word is atonement. He made atonement. He covered our sin like the atonement cover by the blood of Jesus and he removed our sin. That atonement also means to reconcile 
us and to bring us together. And so he atoned for, he paid the price for our sins. Our sins were removed and not only our sins, but our sin nature. And now we have been reconciled to God. And Paul says, by the one spirit, we have been given access to God. And now we are united with him. We are one flesh. So when he bled out his life, he basically bled us together in union with him. Uh, yeah, isn't that awesome? And, and so we're one with him. And Paul says, I pledged you, I betrothed you to one, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've become one spirit with him, same flesh, partakers of him. We're reconciled. And then he says, the eighth thing the angel says is to bring in everlasting righteousness. All I'm trying to show you, um, and then we're going to deal with the last week, is that the prophecy of Daniel takes us right up to the time of Jesus. And you can link it then in with Matthew 24 and all those other verses to see that the coming was the, was the coming of Jesus in judgment in AD 70. So to bring in everlasting righteousness. And of course, we are now the righteousness of God in Christ. And by his righteousness, Paul says in the book of Romans, the many shall be made righteous. And so, you know, and we can go on and on. Every one of these is a complete teaching in itself. But I want to come to the ninth point. The ninth point, Gabriel says, when he comes, Messiah will seal a vision and prophecy, or literally to seal a vision, the vision and the prophet. Now, on the one hand, the seal, the sealing up means to verify as genuine. Now, we don't have to go into all of that. All I want to show you is that I've given you enough scripture, third session, hour each, three hours, scripture after scripture, an average of 70 or 80 scriptures in every teaching, connecting them all together. I think I've shown you enough scripture to link it all together. So, um, uh, you know, the different passages, the prophecies and things like this. So to seal up was to seal and, and verify as genuine. So when Jesus came and his whole life, and even using these scriptures over here, even his prophetic word up to AD 70, you know, the seal of the prophet, it was all verified that Daniel's prophecies were correct. The events that happened after Jesus verified that his prophetic words were correct and his connection of scriptures, finding its mate and seeing its fulfillment um, in, in life and in time and in the generation of the disciples. So it was sealed up. Secondly, um, you know, that it also means to close it up, to hide it. It's interesting that uh, Paul talks about the gospel was the mystery kept hidden for ages and generations. And the prophets would search, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, with um, intense care, sorry, my face is a bit itchy, um, would, would, would prophesy, were, were seeking out, you know, the time of the prophecy by which the spirit of in Christ in them was pointing to. And so it was the mystery hidden for ages and generations past. And then, of course, you know, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the opening of the seals. And that's why Paul came and he said, the grace that was given to me was to open up this ministry, mystery and explain it to you. And the mystery is this. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's no longer the, the Jewish laws and, and, you know, the laws of Moses and things like this. So it was to open it. And to reveal it, Daniel 8 verse 26 says the same thing. And this is the one that I want to take a little bit of time on um, and to show you that it was the unveiling, the opening was in Jesus. So, so um, the angel says, all right, what I've told you now, what I've told you about this whole agenda, you know, the years basically up until the time of the Messiah and concerning the Messiah is going to be sealed. It's going to be hidden. And I think that's why a lot of these preachers, you know, not getting it still because I think it's a little bit sealed to them. But you've got to understand when Jesus, Jesus said, or the angel said to John in Revelations 19.10, he says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What he was talking about is far bigger than personal prophecy. You know, you, we can take a, a principle out of it. But what he was talking about actually was the whole, the whole spirit of prophecy right through the Old Testament. And of course, including Daniel, is, it's the testimony of Jesus. It's witnessing to Jesus. So you can't take Daniel's prophecy and push it way beyond and disconnect it to some future coming um, as well. So it's the spirit of of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Now in Revelations 22 verse 10. Now, okay, so here comes 
Daniel has these incredible visions, incredible prophetic word delivered by the angel Gabriel himself. And uh, in encounter earlier, Daniel, um, uh, Gabriel said, you know, I, I came to answer you straight away, but, but the prince of Persia hindered me. In other words, the spiritual force over the kingdom of Persia hindered um, um, him from coming. And he called on the help and um, Michael, the archangel, it says, it's the only one mentioned as the archangel. Michael came and stood with him and helped to resist the prince of Persia to get this prophetic word through. Now, those two are really important, those two angels. Only two angels mentioned in the Bible. I'm not talking about the Apocrypha. I'm talking about the Bible. Only two angels mentioned by name. And only one of them is the archangel, and that is Michael. So the, the other thing is, um, the interesting thing is, that in Revelations 22, verse 10, here comes uh, the, the Apostle John, and he has these incredible visions um, and, you know, series of visions, um, very much like a lot of the prophetic comes. And, and his whole book of the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it bears the spirit of prophecy. And so much in the book of Revelation is connected to the whole Bible. All of it is connected to the whole Bible. But so much of it is connected to Daniel's prophecy, the 70 weeks. But listen to what the angel says to John. He sees these things that are happening and that are about to happen or going to happen, sorry, in a few years' time. And the angel says, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, John was seeing some of the unveiling and some of the fulfillment of including Daniel's prophecies. And now the angel says, not like Gabriel, the angel there saying, seal it up. Now, now he's saying, you know, don't seal it. Don't seal it. Don't seal up this prophecy because this is the time for the prophecy. Okay. And John was writing up close to, close to um, AD 70. And he lived through it. And that's why he said, I'm the companion in the kingdom and the tribulation, um, you know, kingdom, the patience, and the tribulation. So he went through it. He saw it. He lived through it. And he was the only one that um, survived. So Revelations 5, 1 to 6. I want to read these now. So seal and unseal. So we're talking about seals. So seal it up. Now we come along, and the seals must be unsealed. The prophecy must be unsealed. So we're talking about seals. So why is it sealed and then unsealed? Well, the, the, the central person in the sealing and unsealing of the vision was Jesus himself. So Revelations chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, watching the time, and, um, and we're doing good. And so Revelations 5, 1 to 6 says this, And I saw, this is John, in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within, in those days, remember, just rolled up like a scroll, a book written within and on the backside, and it was sealed with seven seals. The amazing thing is it was written on the inside. In other words, what was inside was a mystery, and which was still to be unveiled. And, and I think Annalise van Rensburg helped me to see this, and I'm grateful to her. She has such an understanding of all of this. It was written on the backside as well. In other words, it was written about him in the past, but it, there was still a mystery in the present. But when it was opened, the past and the present would become apparent. And man, that's worthy of an amen. That was really good. And he said, I saw him right and sealed with seven seals. You know, the number of perfection, basically, totality of a thing. And I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven or on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. There was only one. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And, you know, because he was, this was the word. He was the word of God. I wept much. And one of the elders said, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, significant, the root of David, significant, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And then he came, skipped a verse, and he took the book out of the right hand, of him that sat upon the throne. Now, in the beginning was the word God. The word was with God, Jesus. Anyway, and uh, there's so much we can so, say about it. It's not the point at the moment. He came and took the word, the book. And so he is the word. And I saw 
when the lamb opened one of the seals. Now, amazing thing is also called the line of the tribe of Judah. But now when Jesus comes and he takes the book, he's the lamb. That points directly to his crucifixion, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lion didn't take it. The lamb took it, um, putting it to his crucifixion, okay? And when the lamb opened one of the seals, the first seal, when he opened it, and I heard as if there was a noise of thunder, and one of the four living creatures will be said, come and see, not the beasts, you know, the kingdoms. And I saw and behold a white horse. And him that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. It's really amazing that in Revelations 19 verse 11, John again sees the rider on the white horse in his name is faithful and true was Jesus. I'm convinced this is the same person. The same part of the seal was Jesus riding forth and, and he, he had a crown, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He went forth conquering and to conquer and he had a bow. Now you can connect that um, to, um, I think it's Psalm 45. You can connect this to, to um, into the Psalms where, you know, it's talking about Jesus as having a bow to conquer. And so he came bent on conquest, one translation says. Now, you've got to understand that when Jesus was coming as the son of man, he went out to conquer. And, and to conquer what? He was going to judge and pronounce judgment on Jerusalem and bring to end that whole sacrificial system, which the Jews had corrupted and perverted and it had become demonic. Paul, uh, John refers to it as the synagogue of Satan, the seat of Satan. And so it had to be, it had to be destroyed. Then he opens the second seal. In the second seal, he sees a red horse. Now it's interesting that the horses are seen in Zechariah 1 and Ezekiel 26 as well. So amazing. But anyway, let's continue. And he says, um, and he's, he's, he sees a second horse, a red horse, and the rider was given power to take peace from the earth by means of a great sword and that they should kill one another. So my feeling on this <clears throat> Um, is that when Jesus began, remember we spoke about, you know, the heavens and the earth, him coming, riding in the clouds, it was a judgment and he used other nations. Um, the way I see this is that Jesus came out and, and bent on conquest. It was the day of judgment, but he was using other nations. And some uh, Bible theologians ascribe different Roman leaders to these uh, different riders on horses. So was a red horse and the rider was given power to take peace from earth. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, the amazing thing is that in Jerusalem, when it was surrounded by the armies and they began the siege and they began the destruction, three different um, leaders were sitting inside of, of the city and they led different factions. And um, the Jews themselves, actually, and Josephus, and uh, I think Eusebius, I think it is, um, records us that more deaths were inflicted by the, the three divisions within the city, the three parts, the three factions within the city. More of them killed each other, um, so much so they, they, they had no place to put the dead. <clears throat> and some people were running on the walls, um, pleading with the Romans to come and get involved and, and to help out. Um, and, and so peace was completely taken away. And the second part was that they would kill each other. And that was literally fulfilled. And we have a historical record. The third seal, a black horse. So listen, I just want to say, you know, one guy's going around teaching in South Africa, the black horse is starting to run now. No, the, all the horses started to run at the time of the crucifixion and ended up um, at AD 70, um, you know, with the destruction of Jerusalem. The black horse, and he, sat, he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And, you know, he talks about, the, you know, measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that uh, hurt not the oil and wine. In other words, to, to measure out food, indicating that there would be a famine. And, of course, with the siege of Jerusalem, there was a famine. And there were reports of Josephus of mothers eating their own children and people eating those that had freshly died um, just to have something to eat um, um, in the city. And um, so the fourth seal was a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. Power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth, that area of the earth, okay, to kill the sword with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And so that was the unleashing then of the seals together with the trumpets, together with the vials. And it all began at the cross, at the crucifixion, and um, it then began to transpire over the next 40 years, 
resulting in the total destruction of the entire religious system, which Jesus wanted, which God's intention was for it to end. Um, that law of Moses was only to take, and the people of Israel was only to take us to the revealing of the seed, Jesus, and then it was to change, and they were to relinquish that and hand over to Jesus, very much like what John prophesied, he must increase and I must decrease. That was a prophetic statement of God's intention of what was supposed to happen with the law under which, which John represented and Jesus representing the, the new, the grace and the kingdom. And he was, I'm supposed to fade out, but the Jews didn't. And they try to keep that system going. And at all costs, you know, God had completely gone out of that system. But to keep it going, it became an institution. And so God had to destroy it. Because Hebrews says, as long as that first institution stood, the second one couldn't be fully um, inaugurated. And so the seals were on the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah. Seven, the trumpets were on the city and the vials were poured out on the temple in one day. And the destruction came now. Just a couple of minutes, and then I'm going to close. If you can just have a little bit of patience with me. I just want to bring this in very quickly, and that is that um, in Deuteronomy 32, before his death, Moses um, gathered the people of Israel. The leadership was going to go over to Joshua. He was going to take the people into the promised land, and uh, he, Moses reminds them, but then he, he sings a prophetic song. And it's called the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32. And he sings all the words of these songs. And uh, it's really amazing when you hear he begins to prophesy concerning the people of Israel. In um, More or less, they're not going to repent. God's heart is for them to repent. And God's heart for them is to restore. But he says words like they're provoked into jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoke him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils and not God. He's prophesying. Um, um, to their future and also to their end, to their destruction, uh, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that they came newly up with, whom your fathers feared not. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred it. And I'm just taking random scriptures through verse 19. Verse 20, I will see what their end shall be, um, is what um, Moses is prophesying. God says, I will hide my face from them because they're a forward generation, children in whom there is no faith. They've provoked me to anger. Fire is kindled in my anger. And he goes on and on and on. Um, they're going to be uh, burnt with hunger, devoured with burning heat. There it is there. That's the fervent heat that's mentioned in Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Bitter destruction. I will send the teeth of beasts upon them. That's the beasts that are being spoken about with the poison of serpents of the dust. In other words, natural and spiritual people. The sword without and terror within. Oh, my goodness. And that's what... Um, you know, was the, the song of Moses. Isn't it really interesting? Is it not really, really interesting that in Revelations chapter 15, verse 3, John writes, and they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. In other words, here was the Lamb, Jesus the Lamb, who had the seals, undoing the seals, and he is now fulfilling that prophetic song of Moses. So it's the, now the song of Moses and of the Lamb, and he, as the son of man coming in judgment and vengeance, is instituting the fulfillment of that prophecy, sung prophecy, the song um, that Moses sang on the people of Israel, bringing about their destruction in the end in AD 70. Now, just as we come to a close in about a minute, um, isn't it interesting that when Gabriel appeared to Daniel in Daniel uh, chapter um, eight and nine, um, and, and then all the way through and gives him the prophecy. I haven't even got time now to go to Daniel chapter 12, wanted to do that, but I don't have the time. Is it not interesting that you don't see appearances of angels until the coming of Jesus and then the hosts of heaven appear? But then guess which angel appears to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, and gives him a prophecy about what's coming, you know, and, you know, those sitting in darkness have seen a great light and all of those kind of things, you know, and tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son and his name is going to be John and he'll be the forerunner, the prophet going before in the spirit of Elijah. And so, and so it was Gabriel. In a few verses later, it's the same angel. Gabriel appears to Jesus. Woo! Come on. What he's showing is this is the times of the Messiah. What he's trying to show us is the 70 weeks, even the 70th week, the beginning of it is, is becoming fulfilled. Man, it's amazing.
Michael appears, you know, in the book of Daniel twice, and uh, then he, he appears now in the book of Revelations, in Revelations chapter 12. So even the Michael angel, Archangel Michael makes an appearance in uh, the book of Daniel. Welcome back, Johan. You're going to come and uh, close with us in a moment. And so he comes, he comes in. He's putting in an appearance. So it's significant that the Holy Spirit inspires the mention of those two angels in um, the Gospels, in the book of Revelations, connecting that whole period to together it says the last two things when gabriel was prophesying he shall confirm the covenant and he shall cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease so jesus established a new covenant with the people of god and he caused all sacrifices and offerings to be ceased by the offering of his own body once and forever so acf johan in a moment is going to close with us with a few songs of praise and worship so I want to declare that vision that Pastor Jethro had done in the camp, Riss and Frieda, Riss and Frieda. I don't know how long I'll continue with the series, but I believe I've done enough to disconnect a lot of the key structures of the edifice, you know, to really decode um, and not recombobulate um, the, 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 oh, the rapture doctrine. So I want to speak peace to your heart. Even if they come up with a vaccine, it's not the mark of the beast. I want to deal with that on Wednesday. Wednesday, we, we want to try having the service and, and a stream at five o'clock. And that might help us with our connectivity and things like that. It doesn't break up. But I trust that you've got something. So I want to just say this, that um, the world is not going to end anytime soon now. The Antichrist is not going to be revealed anytime soon now. Maybe I will deal with that next week. The Antichrist is not going to be revealed anytime soon now. He's already in the world. He was there 2,000 years ago. Um, you're not going to get some mark of the beast through a vaccine. They've come up with umpteen theories about it. Every single one has been wrong. I've heard it from when I was eight, nine years old, lived in holy fear or unholy fear of it all coming to pass. And they were wrong, wrong, wrong. Never once have they apologized or said, sorry, we're wrong. They just keep guessing and keep guessing and keep guessing. And I believe I've given you enough and I will give you enough to show you that it's all transpired. It's all taken place. It's not something in the future. You can be at peace. You can be at rest. Let's love Jesus. Let's serve him. Let's continue um, in our relationship and our walk with God. We will get through COVID-19. We'll get through the pandemic. They'll come up with a, um, you know, uh, what is the word? A vaccine, you know, but it's not going to mark us as the Antichrist and, you know, name, you know, where they're going to inject us, you know, <laughs> in our heads or in our heads, well, who knows? So peace to you.